Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Form3.tech podcast. My name is Kevin Holditch, Head of Platform Engineering at Form3. Today I'm really excited that I've been joined by Ben Cordero from Sneak. How's it going today, Ben? It's going good. Nice to be here. Cool. So uh, to start us off, do you want to give everyone an introduction on your sort of career to date and, and what your role is at Sneak? Uh, I started my career in testing uh, and just learning how, how products get built and how they fail. And then I got curious about just how, how they're built and put together. And so that's when I started to uh, work in build systems and platform engineering. At the time, we were using OpenStack. Uh, and then kind of became clear that people were moving towards uh, the hosted vendors like AWS. And so that's when I switched into um, actually finding out how, how, how companies get built on, on the cloud. Uh, and that's where I've been ever since learning how to really optimize how, how companies build their products on, on a cloud-like platform. Um, with innovations like Kubernetes these days, it, it makes it both easier and, and much harder to do. Uh, but I think keeping an eye on, um, on on that interface between how the people building the product uh, can really perform well has been one of the, the guiding principles for um, my career. Cool. And I think that's kind of, that brings us to the nicely onto the topic of today, which is really around building and running platforms. Um, so to pick up on the last thing you said there, so how do you kind of go about drawing the line between sort of where the platform ends and where the software teams need to sort of know about, because I think different companies put that line in the sand in, in different places and there's there's kind of no right or wrong way, but um, what's your sort of view on that? At the end of the day, companies are there to make money and that means building a product, that means building features. Uh, and, and when it comes down to it, it's all about that product delivery. Um, when it comes to the engineering side of things, companies absolutely should be focusing on hiring engineers to build the product. And for early stage, it can absolutely make sense that you neglect the platform itself. Uh, buying from a, a platform as a service it makes sense right at the start. So at the beginning, you have no platform team. As a company grows, probably around 10 people, maybe all the way up to 100 people as well, you're starting to hire your first platform engineer to actually optimize um, how how products work, how the procedures work. Um, you start seeing the point where people getting in each other's way, and so you can actually um, improve the pipelines a lot if you have a dedicated person, if you hire someone who is no longer focused on the product, focusing on, on the platform itself really trying to eke out that extra piece of efficiency. It could be around build systems. It could be around uh, testing. It could be around observability stacks. Knowing what's going on in production and when it fails, um, figuring out what the humans need to do to make the most out of the product. Um, that's about the time when you start needing a, a platform team uh, and to optimize it. Yeah, totally. I think it is very important um, to have someone who's focused on the actual cross-cutting concerns. So one of the things we found at Form3 as we started to expand was we started needing different teams focused on sort of different product lines. 
So we had one team responsible for like UK products, another team responsible for our Euro products, but no one was responsible for stuff that they both shared. So that's where I feel like the platform team really come into it. So who's gonna, if you're on Kubernetes, who's gonna make sure the Kubernetes cluster is running? Who's gonna make sure it's updated? Who's gonna make sure you can deploy software onto it? Who, you know, whose responsibility is that? So is that, is that how you see it as well? I think that's a very common pattern and it makes a lot of sense. If there's a need for a piece of infrastructure that multiple teams need, it makes a lot of sense to have a dedicated team that works on that shared piece so you don't need to do things twice. However, I think there's a, a counterpoint that is also worth noting at play here, and that's if you do have a single way to do things, it can become abrasive uh, to one team if they're not involved in the design and development. Uh, if they're not d involved in the, in the platform and, and guiding how it's used, uh, you can make it harder uh, for them. So if there isn't that communication going on as well. And in that case, it could be better to diverge and, and maybe spin up two different uh, sets of infrastructure for them. The focus really is on making sure that the people in the team can continue to develop their product as fast as possible. And if it comes down to uh, using shared infrastructure that you only have to build once, that is absolutely an efficiency that you can have. Um, but also if it's getting in the way, if the platform and the infrastructure is getting in the way, being able to say, here's the keys to an AWS account, go at it, come back to me in a week, come back to me in a month and build the product. That could also be a valid way forward as well. Yeah, I think there's there's no kind of one way to skin a cat here. And there's, there's definitely, um, you know, different paradigms will fit different companies. I think the kind of common efficiency I see is having a consistent way to run like a workload like a docker container um so how we've kind of made that division at form three is if teams say my example the euro and uk team the uk team need some aws pad services to deliver their products such as sns sqs whatever that may be we give them a terraform workspace where they can terraform up those things and they're responsible for those that's not part of platform that's their domain if they've got an sqs queue they'll deploy that and run it but the actual running of their workloads, currently we use a combination of ECS and EKS. Um, we're responsible as a platform team to keep those clusters running, if you like. So that's kind of where we draw their boundary. Is that is that kind of what, what you see at, at SNCC and, and other places you've got experience at? Yes, and I think we're hitting on a really important point here, and that is where is that boundary between uh, the product engineers and the platform engineers? I think it's been very common since Docker came along that the Docker image and deploying a Docker image at a particular Git jar has been that handoff point and that works really well. Um, and for yeah, maybe the past four or five years, that's been a very common pattern that I've been seeing. Um, nowadays, I think we are getting to the point where we can start hiring for engineers with a little bit of platform experience, maybe not expertise, but someone who knows how to write a little bit of Terraform or someone who knows how to write a little bit of a Helm chart. And so at Sneak, what we do right now is we say that the Helm chart itself is the, the boundary between the product and the platform team. And so any Kubernetes resource, particularly any namespace Kubernetes resource, can be 
Wild West. It can be opened up as the, the platform API. Um, right now, with uh, some of the maturity of the Kubernetes controllers, um, not every single API is fully under control there. Um, but there are some techniques that you can use, like using uh, Terraform from inside uh, inside Helm um, that can help bridge the gap between traditional you know, cloud resources and the dynamic nature that is Kubernetes clusters as well. Yeah, I think that using Terraform inside Kubernetes is quite interesting. So I think the direction we're kind of going at Form 3 is for application-specific infrastructure, we're trying to move that towards more of a sort of Kubernetes operator pattern. So for example, we've got a project underway to migrate to CockroachDB away from Postgres running behind on RDS. And currently we use Terraform to vision those databases that each team is in control of that. If they want a database, they can create one. That's all well and good. And in the Kubernetes world, we see it working much better where an application, we've written a, a Kubernetes operator that can provision you a cockroach uh, database within our cluster. And that's all controlled as part of your Kubernetes deployment manifest. So you'll say, I've got my application, this is the container and it needs a, a cockroach database. And we let sort of flux in this case, apply that change to the cluster. So it feels quite clean to use the Kubernetes to uh, tooling to deploy that infrastructure because it's also contained inside the cluster. I like that pattern a lot. So your cockroach databases, are they, uh, from the developer point of view, do they just say, I want a new database, I don't care where it is? Correct. And is that database running inside the same cluster as the application or in a dedicated cluster managed by, say, a database team? At the moment, the way we've got it set up, because we're still kind of in the R&D phase of this, is that it's part of the same cluster, but ring fence nodes in a different tenant that the app teams don't have access to. But I think in the future, it might end up being a different cluster. But in either case, the app teams don't have to care about that because as part of the operator, it will bring them back the endpoint of the database. So they can literally run that in, inject in that endpoint and just start using it. And it also provisions them um, a client certificate to use to authenticate with the database they've just created. So that's all kind of built into the operator. So they've got a really nice way to start using that resource and they don't really need to care what cluster it's running in. They just consume it. This Yes, this really is the pattern that um, I, I like and I, I want to push for um, in a lot more companies as well. So let's split it down. From the developer point of view, you have a small YAML file, maybe 50 lines max that just says, I want a database. I want it to do um, these kind of, you know, some workload. And so it needs to be a certain size, certain amount of disk space, maybe even a certain number of replicas, but that's about all the options that they can specify. Outside of that module or that home chart um, it would be the URL that you need to connect to, automatically provision the credentials. I'd even go the extra step and automatically provision dashboards, metrics, alerts, on-call rotors, that kinds of thing, um, all of that hidden behind uh, the, the API abstraction. And then the second part here is the implementation of that abstraction, typically done by platform engineers that belong to the company, figuring out the nuances of how does that database manifest at this company. Um, so for example, you said if uh, CockroachDB running in cluster, it could be in a couple of years time, there's a really good hosting provider and you might not want to run those yourself. 
but without changing your API, um, your in-house team could come along and do the migrations behind the scenes, behind the APIs. Maybe that's a, an operator upgrade down the line, um, but you can then um, hide the change from product developers, but still get the benefits of all the upgrades um, uh, later on down the line. Uh, the third piece being, of course, the, the, the cloud provider themselves. Uh, something like Amazon, while they do a lot of uh, uh, infrastructure for free, they don't currently have a cockroach uh, competitor. They have Aurora instead, which is a different pattern. Um, but maybe they're, well, CockroachDB themselves have their hosted version, but I'm sure there'll be other vendors along as well with slightly different integrations. Um, until then, uh, having a dedicated team to build database clusters might seem like the right thing to do right now as well. Yeah, I think you're kind of getting onto the realms of having um, sort of specialist platform teams within platform because you're you kind of see this more in like the Kubernetes space. So I think the, the use case I'm thinking of that we've got Form 3 is we've got certain workloads such as Cockroach and that that are stateful and they've got a certain set of requirements around how you upgrade those that makes it quite a bit more tricky. And you've got other apps, which typically the ones that your um, application teams are developing that are normally stateless and relying on your stateful you know, um, databases and things like that. Uh, and the running, um, what you call it, profile of those clusters is often very different. So one pattern you could do is split the clusters and have stateful and stateless, and then have different rebuild schedules and um, cycles around that, and maybe different platform teams who specialize in the different cluster types and know how to operate them and rebuild them, because it might, they, yeah, they've kind of got different specialities. Yes, and I think right now, if you ask the question, do I need a platform team? At the very beginning stages of a company, the answer is probably no. Um, but I still think there is a need for platform teams at the moment. Amazon don't have every single implementation as a hosted API yet. Um, and so there's still that level of integration that you need for in-house platform engineers that you really can't outsource anywhere else at the moment. It's that dynamic between figuring out what the needs are of your product engineers, finding a solution, not necessarily the, the prettiest solution. Uh, it could just be slapping an, uh, a Kubernetes operator in front of Terraform, and then here you go, here's a URL. Um, or it could be all the way down to um, custom AMIs that you need to build old-fashioned and run in VMs because they can't run in containers for some reason. Um, that That's still absolutely appropriate to do um, even though we have access to some amazing cluster schedulers sometimes there are just some workloads that um, a company needs to, to, to reach its appropriate scale that that need to be done manually for all intents and purposes yeah definitely I'm interested in just on that thread you've just mentioned I kind of see the industry trend as being more and more serverless you see AWS launching stuff like you know EKS, the serverless version now. We've got ECS Fargate, which is serverless. Um, we've got um, even things like Aurora serverless now. So do you see like maybe in a few years' time where more and more stuff is serverless, the need for the platform team diminishes because app teams can kind of push that platform responsibility to the cloud provider? like. Or do you feel like there'll still be a need for platform teams? 
I hope so. Although I am doubtful. Um, there's a project I'm working on right now where the cost efficiencies of going serverless, going on, on, on the cloud in that elastic sense, going full-on multi-tenant and cramming as much uh, use cases into the minimum amount of OPEX, um, that's definitely useful if your company is in a, a cost efficiency mode trying to figure out how to optimize uh, the product for the infrastructure. Um, alternatively, there's another optimization that a company could go for, which is that uh, maybe that single tenant use case, the optimizing for uh, data locality, or if you have uh, risk averse customers, uh, that might come in as a business need that overrides the, the platform needs. Um, it could be that if you're willing to have each one of your customers pay for the infrastructure, go ahead, go spend the cost and, and double the capacity by literally doubling the servers. Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out over the next few years. I think there's definitely a um, an argument to be had if you were making a startup today to try and build it all on serverless and really reduce that friction from the get-go. Um, I feel like a lot of people reach for kubernetes too soon because they see that as the shiny thing that everyone's doing whereas for quite a lot of use cases it's complete overkill absolutely i get this question a lot especially from friends who maybe i haven't worked with for a little while and, and they're trying to figure out what do they do for their hobby product or what do they do for their new startup and things like the Heroku's or the Netlify's of the world are very, very good for just letting you build the product. Get product market fit first, wait until you've got a product that people are willing to pay for, and then think about the platform team afterwards. It might mean that going serverless early is, is good because of that cost efficiency bit whilst you're still trying to figure it out. The consequence of that though is serverless principles are still relatively new. You're not going to get a, a new backend engineer, for example, straight out of university or from a, a coding bootcamp who knows every little detail about custom Lambda runtimes. That's just not going to happen. Um, you're going to get people who know how to run a web server, but might not know all of the details about HTTP caching. And so sticking to tried and true platforms is probably the way to go rather than specializing, um, at least for now. Maybe give it a couple of years and then if uh, serverless and especially like edge computing uh, works out um, where the APIs on the, on, on the server, wherever that server is, are very similar to other APIs that people are currently using, such as browser APIs. I think that would be very interesting to see. But right now, I don't think it's uh, a straightforward to just say, start with Lambda on day one. Okay. Yeah, understood. Um so that kind of brings me on to the next topic I want to speak about, which is I feel like a key a key point that you're kind of driving home is really trying to reduce that friction and time it takes an app team to deploy to production. So what kind of techniques and how do you how do you kind of feel like a platform team should go about that? The best way I've described this is to focus on new starters, focus on people who are new to your company. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're junior. It just means that they don't know what your tools are yet. So being able to focus on people who don't know where the deploy button is, uh, 
um, making it really obvious how to make a change in your system, how to observe the system, how to get the logs, how to get the metrics, and how to respond to incidents and how to actually run the software in production. Focusing on making that as easy as possible is the way to go here. You might have a team that has a lot of seniors in them, uh, a lot of people who have had a lot of experience running software, but they probably have a lot of different experiences. And so focusing back to how do I make the new starter experience great means that an engineer who's been working in your company for three or four years can switch to a different code base and be immediately productive straight away. Uh, maybe they're supported by a whole bunch of other engineers who are making progress and their familiarity with the code base has gone out of date, at which point they're back at square one too. They're junior engineers, just the same as everyone else again. Focus on them. Okay, so you said a couple of interesting points there I just want to ask you about. So one was, you, uh, which is a really interesting perspective I haven't thought about before, is you want to focus on someone who's maybe new to the company or new to a team and sort of see where their pain points are. So is that something you would, as a platform engineer, if you see someone trying to deploy software, you would observe them or work with them or even ask them afterwards, what were your pain points? And then try and feed that back into your design and your roadmap. Is, is, that, is that the process you follow? Absolutely. Um, I would go as far as advocating that platform teams probably need user researchers as well. Um, figuring out how people are using your platform uh, where their pain points are, finding out even feature requests, or, hey, how do I get access to the database? Do I need to shell in, or is there a console that I need to go to? Where's the documentation for it? That's all product-based feedback. Um, and and I'm, I'm really glad to see some movement towards running platform infrastructure as a product, where your features are uh, developer philosophy, uh, where your features are developer velocity, where your features are how quickly does it take an engineer to get their commit to production. Um, and also on the other side, how quickly does it take an engineer to diagnose a problem when on call? Uh, these are all in the same loop about providing um, a lovely platform for an engineer to work with. Okay. I think you've... you've uh, that, I'll start again. That's a really interesting perspective that you sort of take the engineer's feedback back into your sort of view of platform and then build in and continuously go through that feedback cycle of trying to improve things. Uh, you also picked up a couple of times on observability and mentioned on call. And I'm quite interested on your views of, uh, of how to run on call at a company and how, how you see that best working. I think this is very uh, poignant now that most... Um, most engineers are expected to be on call and run platforms that are available 24 seven, whereas maybe 10 years ago, that wasn't the case. So how do you kind of see on call working? I think it's very important for companies to realize that the product only makes money when a service is online, when the application is running. And so it doesn't matter how many staging environments you have, it doesn't matter how many tests you're doing, you should absolutely do them, but they give you more confidence about running in production, but running in production is where you actually make your money. Um, keeping your customers happy, keeping um, the product alive, functioning sufficiently, efficiently, 
um, is where the focus and attention should be. And this is where the on-call practice comes along. Um, from the Google SRE book, you have a lot of the practices around SLOs and alerting based on symptoms that actually cause customer pain. Um, moving us away from the, the traditional, is my server alive, am I running out of CPUs? They're great metrics if you don't know what's going on, but they don't actually tell you if there's a problem. For example, you could have a situation where um, if your web servers are running at 100% CPU, they're probably slowing down requests. But if you have a, a batch workload or a queue workload, you want them to be running at 100% CPU. That's efficiency. Um, that's actually things happening really, really fast. And, and, and you want to optimize for that. So if you have an alert that is generically 100% CPU, page someone in, that might be the wrong thing to do. And you're just going to burn out your engineers that way. Yeah, that's, that, that's a really interesting point. I think engineering burnout is something that that people really need to focus on. Um, and it's quite important, as you just mentioned, to really think about um, what you're alerting on and constantly um, evaluate that. Um, what are your kind of views on um, how you could sort of set up the on-call sort of schedule? So who should be responsible? Who who should you raise when an alarm goes off? Should that be a platform engineer? Should that be the person who who wrote the software? Should it... Should it um, be conditional based on what the alert is? Like, what are your thoughts around that? I definitely think if you're writing code, you should be the one taking the pager for it. I think there's a benefit to having platform engineers on call, maybe even a dedicated on-call rotor for your platform engineers, but realize that they can never have enough context about how to fix um, a product feature bug. If an endpoint is slower than normal, a platform engineer is going to tell you, yes, that endpoint is slower than normal, go fix your database. They aren't going to tell you what migration to run to do that. How could they? They don't know what the schema is. They're not there in the database. They are running the database or they're only provisioning the database. Um, I think having a platform engineer on call is helpful, but only in that support role for, I need to contact the vendor, please raise a bug kind of situations, not the, my database is on fire, please fix it for me. I should have contacted you a month ago. Okay, very, very interesting. I think um, different companies kind of draw the line in sort of slightly different places there. So some companies um, rely on platform to, I guess, like scale their databases, scale their platform, because they see that as being a platform concern, whereas other companies would push that down to the the engineering teams themselves and there's some sort of gray areas there that you could argue either way the issue with that is that the modern platform is so big you you have databases because it's easy for us to think about databases those are the things that are chugging along just fine until they're not but then there's networking as well there's networking inside the cluster there's networking outside of the cluster we now have mesh networks we now have overlay networks um, we have uh, on the compute side, we we aren't just dealing with um, AMD 64 running on Linux anymore. Um, ARM is getting quite popular. Serverless paradigms are getting quite popular. For a good couple of years now, I've been running in production without SSH access to the servers. So um, our traditional thoughts about what a platform team can be doing um, 
it's no longer sshn and edit the nginx file it's, that's that's just not how we run platforms anymore unfortunately um, although i do miss those days um, so when it comes to when when do i page the platform team it really is when it's something fundamentally wrong with the, with the infrastructure um, yeah sure maybe it affects everyone but every product team at that side if their server is offline then they need to have a contingency for that that means that their application's down application engineers are responsible for the application that they're running how the company makes money the implementation of that is it's running on a server or it's running on a cloud service somewhere if that dependency goes down do you have a contingency that's the domain of the product surely because if the product's down that's the people who are responsible for it this comes all the way back to design choices when when you're building a product very early on it could be what cloud vendor you're using do you choose to go multi-cloud or not it could be do i want to use a fully custom tech stack or do i go with one of the mainstream languages and a postgres database that hey i know how to run a postgres database or it could be that I've heard about web scale, and so maybe I'm going to go for a NoSQL database that has uh, scale out capabilities just by adding more nodes. Those are design choices that come back to the product team, although they can be implemented and provided by the platform team. Awesome. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of about all we've got time for today. I think it's been really interesting getting your thoughts on running a platform, your experiences of being a platform engineer. Um, so thanks a lot for taking the time to come on the show. Where can people find you if they want to reach out to you? Hi, thanks. People can find me on Twitter. I'm at BenCordZero. Awesome. And we'll put your handle in the show notes. Um, so thanks to everyone for listening. And thanks again, Ben, for coming on the show. Thanks very much. Form 3 are looking to double the size of our remote-first engineering team. If you'd like to help the world move money faster and enjoy working on complex technical challenges using the latest tech, feel free to check out the careers page in the description.